our study on controversial issues and probably just <laughs> first message will be reviewing everything we've talked about and divine healing. We've been looking at that subject and, um, and then we'll look at probably a few others. We've looked at a number of subjects that uh, are, do cause controversy and um, we could probably do this for years. But anyway, looking forward to getting back to that soon. Uh, don't know exactly when, depends a little bit on Delaney's next week and then uh, just how things go because I would like God's people to kind of be back before we do. So um, we're in Nahum chapter 1 and um, uh, you're going to get some of the, just some of the things that God has uh, stirred me about in my own personal devotions, been reading through the Minor Prophets and uh, just recently was in this book and um uh, there's a verse that really stood out to me in chapter 1 that I hope will be a blessing to you tonight and will uh, just encourage your heart. Um, it's kind of interesting verse to me because as you're reading through, it's a, a chapter talking about judgment, over and over talking about judgment. And, uh, and there's just one encouraging verse that kind of just jumps out at you. And it's found in verse 7. Um, and so it's a good three-point outline. Isn't that wonderful? But uh, uh, well, it's, you always, uh, preachers appreciate that. So here's what God says. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Isn't that a great verse? You, you know what's really interesting about the verse is if you read the verses around it, you say, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Not right now, okay? But if you read the verses around it, you really find that it's, it's like a light in the darkness. Uh, it's an encouragement in the midst of really dismal, uh, desperate day and desperate time. And it was a message that Israel needed to hear, needed to know. And, um, and uh, again, it really is intriguing. We'll look at the whole chapter. But verse 7 is going to be our focus and it's, uh, I think, just a wonderfully encouraging message tonight. And I hope you'll be uh, lifted up and, um, and just uh, reminded of how great a God we serve tonight. So let's pray together and let's ask God's help. Father, we do need your wisdom to understand this passage of Scripture, to understand what's going on here, what's been taking place with the children of Israel, what is being talked about in the verses surrounding verse 7. And then uh, we need your help to understand and be reminded that we serve a good God. And uh, so encourage our hearts tonight. Uh, and I pray that uh, the thoughts that uh, you've given to me, I'll be able to share in a clear way and in a helpful way so that uh, all of God's people listening this evening will find uh, the encouragement, hope, and maybe even exhortation they need uh, to live life for the glory of God in the days ahead. And I'll thank you for what you'll do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that J.C. Penney was a Christian? He was. Um, and though it was true, it doesn't mean his life was an easy one. Uh, something happened during the Great Depression that changed his life. In fact, J.C. Penney had opened his stores. Yes, we're talking about that J.C. Penney. Had opened his stores, uh, which, by the way, he was a very interesting man. Um, he probably wouldn't have made his business successful if they followed his advice. But anyway, um, uh, J.C. Penney was, had already started a couple businesses, or his business, and had been going pretty well, and a number of stores had already been opened when the Great Depression uh, struck the country. 
He happened, though, to be in a very vulnerable place at the time, not because his stores uh, were in trouble, because quite honestly, they did very well. I, I guess like maybe we're observing in our day, there's some stores doing very well. Some stores are really, really successful right now, like, like Lowe's and Home Depot, because everyone's fixing everything in their house because they're sitting at home not knowing what to do. All right, that's another story for another time, right? But, uh, you know, those places, they're really successful and others aren't. Well, J.C. Penney's stores during the Depression, people still needed things and they were getting things. So his stores were doing well, but he had already added some outside interests and those were proving extremely costly. To finance those interests, Penny borrowed heavily. As well, he was known to give generously to organizations and individuals. And so the Depression hit, and banks requested repayment of his loans sooner than he anticipated. Well, cash flow was really tight. Uh, Penny was finding it difficult to meet payment schedules as, as it was. Constant and unrelenting worry began to take a, a toll. And he, here are his words. He said, I was so harassed with worries I couldn't sleep and developed an extremely painful ailment. Concerned about his health, he checked himself into the Kellogg Sanitarium at Battle Creek, Michigan. It was what many considered to be the Mayo Clinic of its era. Dr. Elmer Eggleston, a staff physician, examined Penny and declared he was extremely ill. He, he gave these words. He said, a, re, a rigid treatment was prescribed, but nothing helped. He was attacked by the twin demons of hopelessness and despair, and his will to live was eroding. Penny said this again, I got weaker day by day. I was broken nervously and physically, filled with despair, unable to see even a ray of hope. I had nothing to live for. I felt I hadn't a friend left in the world. Even my family, I felt, had turned against me. Well, alarmed by his condition, the doctor gave Penny a sedative, but the effect quickly wore off, and Penny awakened with the conviction he was living the last night of his life. I mean, it's a desperate time. He wrote these words, Getting out of bed, I wrote farewell letters to my wife and to my son, saying I didn't expect to live to see the dawn. Penny went then to sleep, and he awakened the next morning, surprised to find himself alive. Making his way down the hallway of the hospital, he could hear singing coming from a chapel where devotional exercises were held every morning. The words of a hymn he heard being sung spoke deeply to him. Going into the chapel, he listened to the singing, the reading of Scripture, and the prayer, Suddenly something happened, he recalled. I can't explain it. I can only call it a miracle. I felt as if I had been instantly lifted out of the darkness of a dungeon into a warm, brilliant sunlight. I felt as if I had been transported from hell to paradise. I felt the power of God as I've never felt it before. It was then and there that Penny knew God was there to help him and that God could meet his needs uh, through this time. He wrote these words, From that day to this, my life has been free from worry. The most dramatic and glorious 20 minutes of my life were those spent in that chapel that morning. Let me share with you, it's interesting, the hymn that spoke so eloquently and miraculously to Penny. Be not dismayed, whate'er betide, God will take care of you. 
Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. In the midst of darkness, God turned on the light. It seems to me like Nahum 1.7 is a verse where God turns on the light. Uh, it's in a wonderful verse. It's a verse of promise, and it's a, a, a verse of truth. Don't the words comfort your heart? Look at what he says again. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. As I've been reading through the minor prophets, I said this verse just jumped out at me. And the reason it did is because this was at a time when Israel was, was in great trial and great difficulty. The Assyrian army had already come in in the time of Hezekiah. In fact, there's kind of debate about exactly when this was taking place or discussion about the time, but many, most agree it was around the time when Hezekiah and, remember, Sennacherib came and uh, threatened the, the children of Israel. Now, God wrought a victory with Hezekiah at one, at, uh, at one time, at least for a little bit there. But the Assyrians did come, and they did take, and they conquered the land. And, and, um, and so uh, God used the Assyrian army to judge the children of Israel for their sin. Now, God uh, pushed it off some because of the righteousness of Hezekiah and because of the, the deeds of him, but... The judgment did come, and God used a wicked king, because he was a wicked king, to bring judgment upon his people. But in that dark day, God gives them this message in verse 7. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's like, wow, this is a dark night. And all of a sudden, there it is in the midst of verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of, the, of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. This wonderful message of hope is found in our passage uh, this evening. And, um, and so, I thought I had outlines for this. I don't have an outline for this, so you're just going to have to make it through. I thought I had outlines for this somewhere. Maybe I do have them sitting somewhere. But let me share with you a couple things. First of all, I want you to see the context. The context. There is, in this chapter, a declaration of judgment. Look, look at, the ver at verse 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Now, do you see the opening phrase there? The burden of Nineveh. Nineveh, if you don't understand how the word is sometimes used, you might think the, the, the writer is weighed down. He's saddened at the start. Well, maybe he was, but that's not exactly what it means there. It can refer to a burden one carries, and it may be that, that Nahum was, was burdened down by um, the message that God wanted the children of Israel to get, uh, as many of the prophets were. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. It's because he wept for God's people and because he had a burden on his heart. But when it says it was a burden, it, it can, can be a burden one carries, but it can signify a proclamation or pronouncement. And it seems to me that that is the case here, that Nahum is actually making a pronouncement. Now, understand this. It wasn't against Israel. 
the pronouncement actually was going to be against Syria, Nineveh, all right? And, uh, and those people, Nineveh was the flourishing capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was the home of King Sennacherib, king of Assyria, during the reign of King Hezekiah. They had already treated Israel shamefully, had been used of God to bring judgment upon that nation. That had been done, and it was time now for God to judge this nation he used to judge Israel. Throughout the chapter, God sends a message of hope and encouragement to one group of people, but promised terrible judgment to another. All right, the people receiving the encouraging message? Children of Israel, at least in this case. The people receiving, uh, hearing or receiving a message of judgment, a message of vengeance, a furious vengeance from God? The Assyrians. And it's interesting to me because God had just used them to bring judgment. Now, what I find, though, in verse 7 is almost like this, this ray of light in, in darkness. He's talking about judgment coming on the Assyrians, which, by the way, would have been a ray of light to the Israelites. But understand this, they were still in this cap captive state. They were still in this dismal state at this point. And verse 7 had to be some words of great encouragement in the midst of that dark time. When God said, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Now, what was going to take place? Well, the author doesn't get into it all that, all that much in, in, the, um, in the passage. He's just sharing us this, that God takes vengeance on those who do wrong and those who refuse to show mercy. Now, again, there's some really interesting things to think through, and we don't have, we don't have time to, to go way off on a rabbit trail, and I don't wish to do that tonight. But um, it's an amazing thing how God used the, uh, if you want to say, the cruelty of the Assyrians to judge Israel, but then God turns around and he takes the cruelty of the Assyrians uh, and he judges that severely. So that God, in one way, used the cruelty of the Assyrians to fulfill his purposes to help Israel see their wicked sinfulness before God that they had been. Yeah, do you know one of the prophets describes them as harlots? They had been unfaithful to their mate, to God. And God sent terrible judgment, and he used the Assyrian army and their cruelty. And they were known to be extremely cruel when they conquered people. They, uh, and, and it really is, it's gruesome. I mean, they, they ripped up women with, with child. Uh, they had no uh, respect for human life. They had no concern about, about people. They didn't show any kind of compassion on anyone. They just did what they wanted. They, they took what they wished to take. They were very, very cruel. And God said, all right, look, I used that, but now I want you to know that what you have done and the way you have acted is wrong, and you are going to face judgment for this. And so God is going to take vengeance. And it's interesting because he says the Lord re, uh, takes vengeance. The Lord will vent, take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. But verse 3 says this, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not, will not at all acquit the wicked. So the first part of verse 3 says this, It may take a little while, but God's vengeance always comes. And God punishes evildoers. And quite honestly, that should be a message to us as well. 
But the encouragement of verse 7 is where our focus is going to be. Yet, it's important for us to see the context. There's a declaration of judgment on the Assyrians who had mistreated the Israelites. And in verses 1 through verse uh, verse 6, he talks about that. And the fact is that they would not be able to escape. The Lord may be slow to anger, but he's great in power. And he won't acquit the wicked. He's not going to let them go off and do their thing and judge and, and, if you would, show their cruelty and then God not do anything about it. Uh, by the way, aren't you encouraged by that? I, I don't know about you, but it's encouraging to me when I know that, uh, that, that, that good. Look, God does not overlook sin. Um, and he talks about how he's going to bring judgment. Uh, and he talks about. Uh, how in in verse uh, 3, that uh, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So the Lord will have his way. He will judge his people. Starting in verse 8, he talks a little bit more about that, and he describes his judgment as an overrunning flood. Do you see that? This judgment is going to come, and it's going to make, uh, if you want, an utter end of the place thereof. So, Darkness will pursue his enemies. I mean, you can see this description, this flood coming in. I mean, could you imagine the terror of that? And that is the picture God gives of judgment. Not only do do we have this declaration of judgment, but then we have a description of the ability of God. And I love it because verse 4 and 5 and 6 talk about this. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. And drieth up the rivers, Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, the flower of Lebanon, languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yes, the world and all that dwell therein. Look, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. And that would have to be good news in the ears of a Jewish person in that day, because the Assyrians had treated them shamefully had treated them, as we've said over and over, cruelly. These people had faced the wrath of the Assyrian army and of the Assyrian people. They had been, if you would, decimated by this people. And God said, you know what? There's a time when enough is enough, and I have the power, and I have the ability, and I will take vengeance. And there is, Christian, coming a day when God will when God will, the description of God's ability is amazing here because uh, though they did walk over Israel, if you would, and win a victory and do what they wanted, um, God reminds these people that the mountains quake at him and the hills melt. Uh, God, it may not seem like God is at work in every event and circumstance in life. He is. It may not always seem like that. It may seem like God is powerless because of what we see going on. But don't be mistaken. It's important for us always to understand, first of all, that if evil takes place, it's because God has allowed it, not because evil has won over God. And that should encourage your heart. Also, there's always the great reminder and truth throughout Scripture, and we find it here in this passage, that Though evil may seem to be running rampant, doesn't it seem like that in our day? And, and, and most generations would say the same. But though it runs rampant, there's a God in heaven who's bigger. 
So the Assyrian army was a mighty army. To the Jews, they would have said, there's no way we're going to win over them. And yet God is saying, it's coming. It's coming. I'm bigger than the Assyrian army. I'm bigger than the Babylonian armies. I am, I am bigger than the Roman army. I am, I am, I'm bigger than Alexander the Great. I'm bigger than Hitler. I'm bigger than any other ruler that has ever walked the face of this earth. I am God. And my, we need to remember that in an evil day. The description of God's ability. Isaiah 59 reminds us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. Now he says in the next verse, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That was written in Isaiah 59. But that first verse is wonderfully encouraging, isn't it? That uh, the Lord's hand isn't shortened. He has the ability. And may our heart be encouraged in this dark chapter to understand salvation is not impossible, no matter how big the enemy is in life. Now, the contrast in this passage, again, we said the context. Now, the contrast in this passage is Israel, conquered, defeated, dismal state. How many other Ds can we come up with, you know? Uh, destroyed. Um, I don't know. Anyway, some of you will come up with some of others and maybe share them with me later. But here they are in this pressed down state, and the picture of the chapter is, you're coming out. Assyria, powerful. Do you see the contrast? Mighty. Children of Israel would look and say, never could anyone overcome them. And God says, you're going down. Because it is the power of God to put one down and put up another. And it has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with numbers. It has nothing to do with power. It has everything to do with what God decides And this contrast before us uh, reminds us that that um, that God is still on the throne, even though it doesn't appear like to be that way at times. That's what this chapter is all about. So we have this contrast: Israel, a conquered people, being ill-treated by their enemies, discouraged and weak, had little hope of peace, and good tidings were not the norm. And yet, this passage says. You're going you're gonna to know peace. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, verse 15 says. So, so there's great hope. All right, now we get to uh, verse 7, and I want you to see the comfort. We have the context. We have the contrast, but I want you to see the comfort. So what is the comfort? Well, the comfort is that God's going to judge the Assyrians, and that, that would bring comfort, but... Verse 7 still, to me, is just this wonderfully and uplifting message in the midst of this to say, hey, I just want to remind you who I am. And so we see the comfort. First, first thing we see about the comfort is the Lord is good. Do you know God is still good even though the coronavirus has, has impacted uh, millions of lives um, and millions of wallets and will continue to affect people 
uh, in the days ahead and who knows, maybe even for a long time to come. We have no idea what ultimately is going to happen. But let me tell you something. God is good. He always has been good. He always will be good because that is his very nature. It's an attribute of God. He, he can't be anything but good. Sometimes it's hard to grasp that. Do you think Israel, honestly, at this point, would have struggled with that thought a little bit? Did you get the contrast, the picture? The Syrians come in, conquered Israel, wreaked havoc, destroyed many. They're a decimated, discouraged, defeated people. What would you be thinking about God at that point? Here's the truth. This is a time when they needed to be reminded. And quite honestly, when things are not going well, that's when we need to be reminded. God is good. It's not when I, I, I got a job and I, I got, got a nice car and, 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 you know, family's all doing well and everything's going great that I need to be reminded of this. Because those are the times I say, God is good. It's when I'm not feeling well, when I'm real sick, when I've got some bad news from the doctor, when when things aren't going well with the family, when when uh, it seems like my whole life is in upheaval, like the children of Israel, where I just need these words. God is good. God is good. And that is a major message of the Bible. It is important for the Christian to accept by faith, no matter what's going on around us, God is good. This is a theme of Scripture because it's an attribute of God. 1 Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. The same truth is shared in Ezra's day, and it was sung by the people, and they sang together by chorus in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is Good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. Ezra 3.11. And that was when, by the way, the people had come back to the land of Israel uh, after captivity. And it says this, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And they were reminded at that time, God is good. But I'll tell you, God's good when you've been conquered by the enemy. And God is good when... When you get coronavirus, and God is good when you have the flu real bad, and God is good when you lose your job, and God is good when all sorts of evil and other things happen and come your way. God is good, and that truth is something we need to be reminded of. In Psalm 104 and 5, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. And do you know, it seems like, at least in all these verses we brought out, that when he says the Lord is good, it says his mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. We just need to be reminded, God is good. Now, it's important to remember, isn't it? God's goodness doesn't mean a Christian doesn't have to worry about judgment of sin and wrong, because Nahum 1 is a proof of that fact. And they were had been conquered because of their sin. 
by the way, there's some people who promote this kind of idea. Well, when we talk about God being good, that God would never punish people. That's, that's so foreign to Scripture. God is still good when he judges sin. God is good when he punishes wrong. A good person does what is right. A good person. By the way, you wouldn't say someone was good if they overlooked evil. In fact, this chapter is a reminder that God is good. Well, why, why would it be a reminder of that? Because Israel had sinned and God judged them. Now the Assyrians had sinned and God was going to judge them. Because a good God does that which is right. A good God does judge that which is sinful. But a good God also takes care of his own. Um, I'm forever putting things in my calendar, you know, and because and, uh, I'm pr prone to forget. And it encourages me greatly. <laughs> Not really, but my wife now is starting to forget things. So, you know, I, I, it just it, it doesn't encourage me greatly. But she was asking me about a name, and it's like I, I'm actually proud of myself. After 34 years of marriage, you know, it used to be, uh, that I would say, you know, who is so-and-so? You know the person that we met at such-and-such such a place, you know, at such-and-such such a time? And she'll tell me, she'll just give me the name like right, right like that. So now she's asking me names. I, do you realize how good that makes me feel after 34 years of, of always being the one saying, who is that? <laughs> you know, we, we, we'll talk to someone and, and they'll act like, yeah, we've known her for years. And I'll walk away and say, who was that? I say that every time I walk away from Brother Umstead. I, <laughs> who is that? No, no, here. <laughs> uh, wow, I keep getting myself in trouble with him, I know. But, uh, you know, I'm just pro prone to forget. And there are times in life when we have a tendency to forget. Not, not names. But there are times in life when the pressures are on, when we have a tendency to forget God is good. Is, isn't that true? And... Uh, it's a time like this for the children of Israel. They just need to be reminded, hey, look, uh, people, God is good. You, you may not see it right now. It may not seem like it. Your heart may be breaking. But God is good. He hasn't stopped being good. And he never will. Because that is his very nature. You, you cannot separate God from good. And, and Christian, I want you to know that that message we need today, God is good. Sometimes we need those calendar reminders. I think Nahum 1-7 is a calendar reminder. Just the pop-up saying, you got such and such to do. God is good. Ding. Message. God's good. Maybe you should put that on your daily calendar. Just have it come up random times during the day. I don't know if you can get it to do that. Just God is good. Because sometimes we just need that reminder. Then look, if you would, at verse 7. And he tells us another thing. He's not just good God, but he's a stronghold in the day of trouble, which is interesting because you say, God is good. Why would God allow trouble? Because a good God sometimes allows trouble. But a good God doesn't leave you in trouble. And that is what's so tremendously encouraging in verse 7. 
because someone in trouble might say, God isn't good. And God says, I am. And let me tell you one of the ways that I am, and I'll prove myself to be that, is when you're in trouble, I'm not going to take you out of it because you need it. And you may have asked for it, and it may be judgment because of your sin, but even in that, I will be your stronghold. That is an interesting word. The stronghold literally means a fortified place of defense. Kind of like, I, I think we would imagine in our day, safe rooms. You know what I mean by that? Some people pay, by the way, thousands of dollars to have people build in their homes a safe room. They usually like have a basement area or some place they dig, dig down, and they put this steel uh, room that is supposedly tornado-proof. So that when a storm comes, you can get inside and you can rest safely knowing that you're going to make it through if you have food in there and other things like that through any storm or whatever might come your way. Now, uh, those things aren't foolproof, I know, but in a sense, if you would, um, God is a safe room. He's, a, he's a, a bunker. He's just a place to go and to hide when the storms of life are raging all around um, because a good God... Uh, provides his help. He's uh, able to handle the raging storms around. He didn't say he'll stop him. He has the ability to. Sometimes he sends us through him, and he just provides a safe house. So the storm comes, and it does its damage, but you're kept. And that truth is another one we need to be reminded of. God doesn't say, it's all going to be roses. God doesn't say, I'm going to take it all away. God says, I'm a stronghold. You can run to me. I'll be here for you. I'll meet your need. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David said that in Psalm 27 in verse 1. You know what he said? The Lord is the strength of my life. That's the word stronghold. Strength, stronghold. In Psalm 28, David also said, The Lord is their strength. He is the saving strength of his anointed. Twice in Psalm 31, David used that concept again. When he said, bow down thine ear to me, deliver me speedily, be thou my strong rock for a house of defense to save me. That word strong is the same word that's used here in Nahum. And it's a reminder, hey, look, in the midst of storms, in the midst of problems, God is a stronghold. So God is good. He'll never stop being good. Count on that. God is a stronghold so that the storms, I, hey, look, the storms, I never said wouldn't come, but when they come, I'm a good God, and I'll give you a place where you can hide and you can trust under the shadow of my wings. Um, and then look at the third truth. And he knoweth them that trust in him. Uh, I, I put it this way, God knows. <laughs> Say, what? What? 
does that mean? Do you know one of the great, uh, great promises of Scripture? It's interesting. Maybe one of these days I'm going to go through the Scriptures. Um, this would make an interesting word study or phrase study, I guess. But one of the great promises of Scripture, and it never struck me like this before, is God's knowledge. It's God's knowledge. He knoweth those that are His. It's a very special and a very precious statement. Albert Barnes made note of that fact, and he wrote this. He knows them with an individual, ever-present knowledge. He says not only he shall own them, but he, but he ever knoweth them. So it is said, the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, Psalm 1-6. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, Psalm 37-18. Our Lord says, I know my sheep, John 10-14 uh, and John 10-27. And Paul wrote, the Lord knoweth them that are his, 2 Timothy 2.19. So Barnes went on to write this, that God, being what he is, should take knowledge of us, being what we are, is such wondrous condescension that it involves a purpose of love, yea, his love toward us. As the psalmist says admiringly, Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? In Psalm 144 and verse 3. It's not God knows about the situation. It's not God knows what's going on. It's not God is well aware of your problems. It's that God knows you. Ponder that for a minute. That God knows you. Let that sink in. God knows you in this difficulty, in this day, in this situation. God knows you. No wonder the words of 1 Corinthians 10.13 are so encouraging. There's no temptation is taking you, but such as is common to men. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. How can you know that promise is true? Because God knows you. God said he'll never give us something greater than we can handle or we can bear in life. Never. Well, how could that possibly be? Because, because get this, God knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you need. He knows what you can handle. He knows what you're going through. He knows everything about you. The Lord knows those that are his, those that trust in him. God knows these people in a very, very precious way. Uh, A a well-known public speaker told this story. He said, there she stood in a line at the post office. A line that wound its way almost out the front door. Sounds like our post office. A fellow customer spoke to an elderly lady who was waiting to buy some stamps. And he said, ma'am, you must be tired. Do you know there's a stamp machine over there in the corner? And he pointed to the machine built in into the wall. And this elderly lady said, why, yes, thank you, sir. But I'll just wait here a little while longer. I'm getting close to the window. This customer became insistent. But it'd be so much easier for you to avoid this long line. Buy your stamps from the machine. 
The woman patted him on the arm and she, and she answered, oh, I know, but that old machine would never ask me how my grandchildren are doing. Why was this woman willing to wait in line for whatever, you know, like for half a day? Because it seems like sometimes it takes that. Here, here's the reason, because it was just nice to have someone take knowledge of her. To notice her. Are your grandkids? You know, one of the great, some, what some people are just looking for in life is someone just to take interest. To know them care. And that's all tied up in this idea when it says, the Lord knoweth them that trust in him. Now, you do understand there's a responsibility for the believer in our text that we need to trust. But when we make the decision to believe what God has said and trust in him and run to him for refuge, because that's more the idea of trust in the Old Testament, when we do that, then we can count on God knowing us to take care, to undergird us, to strengthen, to meet needs, because God knows those that trust in him. Isn't that a great verse? When you read the rest of the chapter, I understand that it was dealing with the Assyrians, so there would have been some encouragement to the Israelites, but it just seems like verse 7 is this ray of light that jumps out and says we serve a great God we serve a very special God who can meet our needs so the conclusion some great promises here and we need to remind ourselves of these promises and these truths these attributes of God but there's also a great duty uh, need to remind myself that God is good. Need to remind myself and focus on the fact and be con confident that God is a stronghold in the day of trouble and I need to run to him. Uh, we need to be reminded that God knows those that trust in him and be encouraged. But there's a great duty in this passage, and it's this. We need to just trust and walk with him. Um, do you know verse 15 says that? Behold... Upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. That's always an encouraging message, right? O Judah, notice what he says. Keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And what God is saying there is this. Judgment hasn't come on them yet. You're in captivity. But you know what? Get back to obedience, children. Trust me. Do what's right. Keep on keeping on in the midst of your difficulties. And if you'll do that, here's what you're going to be reminded of in a, in a wonderful way. God is good. God is a stronghold. And God knows you. I don't know about you, but I need that message. Today? Sure. Uh, quite honestly, just need it whenever trouble comes my way. And I hope these words be an encouragement as they have been uh, to me uh, over this past week or so. Father, I thank you so much uh, for 